Let's hear God's word. Genesis chapter 38, the whole chapter. Judah and Tamar. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, who he named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shilah. It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and he named her Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law, to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death as well. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went, to, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to share his sheep, she <laughs> took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil or put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent a young goat by his friend, the Adalamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Inaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, There has never been a shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will be a laughing stock. After all, I did not send this young goat. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution 
And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judas said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns thee, she said. And she added, see if you recognize who seal and cord and staff these belong. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. He says, I want to give her to my son Shiloh. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And she was giving, as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you, be, you, you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zira. This is the name of the Lord. Thank you, Anthony, for reading God's word to us. Now, some of you may be wondering what in the world is going on in this passage. Well, let me pray. And then I will try to explain God's word to us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is all good. And that your word is life. It is truth. It tells us who you are. And it points us to the glory of the cross. It points us to King Jesus. So we pray your blessing over us and over our time right now and may your word go forth and speak truth heal, save, strengthen your people today in Jesus name Amen so I was talking with one of my daughters a few weeks ago and uh, we were talking about a movie she had seen with one of her friends And when I had realized what was in the movie, I had to talk with her about it. So I sat down with her and I was like, look, I saw the movie and I recognized that there were a few sex scenes in the movie. Quite a bit of violence, quite a bit of deception. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? This is inappropriate for you to watch as a child. I don't think you should have watched that movie. And she calmly looked at me, and she said, Well, Dad, what's the difference between that movie and reading the Bible? I was like, wow. She really brought her A-game to this conversation. And I was stumped. I didn't really know how how to answer that question, right? So I had to think about it for a minute, because if you really look at it, our text today, it kind of reads like an R-rated movie. You have sex scandals, you have violence, you have deceit, you have all the warning labels that you would have on a movie and on a rap album. It's right here in this passage. Those warning labels that warns you that, man, maybe these things are inappropriate for children. Under a certain age. Well, Genesis 38 is a crazy chapter. And I had to wrestle with that passage, this chapter, this whole week. Don't get me wrong, but it is the word of God. 
And it is here for a reason. And we can't avoid it. You see, unlike movies and rap music that tends to glorify sex and lying, the Bible often depicts these things to show us who we truly are. See, Genesis 38 shines a spotlight on humanity. It shows us in all of our brokenness, in all of our sinfulness, and in all of our messiness. Genesis 38 doesn't show us anything different about humanity than what we watch on YouTube. Genesis 38 doesn't show us anything different to what we see on social media or read about in the news. Genesis, we may know families who live this passage right here. Maybe this is your background. Maybe not in its, not in the same way, but most definitely in its depraved nature. So in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised by what we read in this chapter. But what Genesis 38 shows us is how despite the sinfulness and messiness of life, God is still able to accomplish his gracious purposes, even through sinful people. And that's the point that I want to make today, that God accomplishes his gracious purposes even through sinful people. So let's look at our text. So the first question you may be asking is, look, I thought we were doing a series on the life of Joseph. So why are we talking about Judah and his sons and this whole messed up situation? Good question. Remember how I said last week that the story of Joseph is not primarily about Joseph. This is a story about God fulfilling his purposes and his plans in keeping his covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The promise that through their family, God was going to bless the nations. And so since Judah is going to be the son through which God will Bless the nations. God is going to have to do a work in Judah's life. He's going to have to prepare him. So just like Joseph is being prepared through his imprisonment, through his slavery, through his experience, Genesis 38 is going to show us how God is preparing Judah to be a blessing to the nations. Joseph is being prepared to save Israel. Judah is being prepared to be a blessing to the nations. And so what we're going to see in Genesis 38 is God working through sinfulness and the messiness of Judah's life to establish his purpose. So what I want us to see in our text today is one is you have Judah's sons, part one. Then you have Judah's sins. And then the last thing I want us to see in our text today is Judah's sons, Part two. So let's look at the text. Let's read verses one through five. And it says that at that time, Judah left his brothers and he went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Then Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and he made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. 
She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezeb that she gave birth to him. So after the events of Genesis 37, where Joseph sells his brother to Ishmaelite traders, we read that Judah, for some reason, he just up and left his family. We don't know why he left. It could be because he just couldn't bear seeing his father grieve over the loss of his son. He couldn't stand the tension that that was probably creating between him and his brothers harboring that secret. We don't know, but we can imagine why he left. But he's gone. He's out. And Judah went down to Adullam, which is a Canaanite city south of where they were staying in Hebron. And notice the phrase that is being used here. The language is more than just a geographical statement of Judah going down. It's a spiritual one as well. Remember when we were doing our study in the book of Jonah and how Jonah uses that phrase quite a bit. The book of Jonah uses that phrase quite a lot. He was going down. It wasn't just representing where Jonah was going geographically. It was representing where Jonah was going spiritually. It's the same for Judah. Judah is going down spiritually. He is not in a good place in his relationship with God. Judah has left home and he has turned aside to the things of this world, forgetting all about the covenant-keeping God of his fathers. And we see that in verse 2. The first thing Judah does when he leaves home is that he enters into a covenant relationship with a Canaanite woman. We read in the NIV that he married her and he made love to her. But some translations have verse 2 read as that he saw her and he took her. He saw this woman and he took her. Meaning he saw something he liked and he said this was forbidden back home. But I want this. This is what I want. What does that sound like to you? He saw and he took. What does that bring memories up? What does that conjure up for you? Genesis chapter 3, right? Remember Eve. She saw and she took the forbidden fruit. This is the same language the narrator is using here to describe Judah's action. See, Judah knows he's not supposed to be in relationship with this woman. It was consistently discouraged as the Canaanites were known for corrupting the people of God. They were known for drawing God's people's hearts away from them. And so that was a practice that was discouraged. Jacob always told his son, Isaac, do not intermingle with the Canaanites. And this is exactly what Judah is doing. She's the forbidden fruit. He saw her and he took her. And this language also implies that this relationship was probably more characterized by lust than by love. Judah is sexually impulsive and that's going to get him into a lot of trouble later on in the text. So he takes this woman to be his wife and she gives birth to three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And over the course of time, we read that as Ur got older, Judah got for him a Canaanite wife by the name of Tamar. 
So not only does he marry a Canaanite woman, but he gets a Canaanite woman for his son, Ur, a wife by the name of Tamar. And here's where the story gets a little interesting, maybe a little weird for us modern readers. Look at verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death. We don't know what Ur was doing, how long he was doing it, but eventually it caught up to him. And we read that the Lord had to put him to death for his wickedness. So as was the custom back then, look, if your firstborn son died without leaving an heir, then it fell to the secondborn son to marry the deceased brother's widow in order to produce an offspring for the older brother. This was called the law of levered marriage, and it would become a law that was enshrined in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 25. That's a few books later. So as was the custom back then, if your firstborn son died without leaving an heir, then it fell to the secondborn son to produce an heir for their brother. And the law of leverage marriage was to ensure that each of the sons of Jacob would inherit the divine, would, would inherit the portion of land that God had given them. It was theirs by divine right. It no longer belonged to the Canaanites. God was giving it to Israel and to his sons. And so their responsibility was to pass on their particular portion of the land to their sons. So this law was to make sure that once Judah died, his portion of the land didn't fall back into the hands of the Canaanite or to some other foreign entity, but that it stayed within the family. Onan had a responsibility. He had a responsibility to make sure that his older brother inherited the portion of land that was his by divine right. And so Ur, once he was out of the picture, Onan's job, he was the next of kin. He was what we would call the kinsman's redeemer. And so his responsibility was to take his brother's widow have a son by her in order to secure his brother's inheritance. Now look, to us, now this may just be nasty, right? But to them, it was responsibility. It was his responsibility to take care of Tamar, to provide for her, and to have a son so that his brother can have an inheritance. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law. But Onan, he knew that the child would not be here, so he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. Verse 10, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death. 
So if Onan knew that this was his responsibility to take care of Tamar and to provide an offspring for his brother, then why is he not fulfilling his duty? Well, the way I see it, Onan was a bit selfish, just like his father, Judah. You know, Onan, he wanted to play without having to pay. Onan wanted the sex, but without the responsibility. And God wasn't pleased with this. And we see the same trend in our culture now, don't we? People want the pleasure of having sex without the responsibility that comes with it. Just like God judged Onan for this, I believe God is judging our culture for the same thing. You see, when sex becomes all about us, when sex becomes all about how I can satisfy my needs and and, and my wants and my desires, then people get hurt, not just emotionally, but physically as well. Just think about it. The rise sexually transmitted diseases, teenage pregnancies, abortions, divorces, even sexual confusion is an act of God's judgment on the people who think they can play without having to pay. Think they can go against God's will and there not be any consequences for it. There's always consequences for sin, as we see in our text. So God judged Onan for wanting to use Tamar purely for his sexual gratification. See, Onan had a responsibility and he refused to accept it. So these are the sons of Judah. And their wickedness in the eyes of the Lord meant that they died prematurely without having any offspring. And at this point of the story, the author kind of leaves us wondering, well, who is going to inherit the blessings? Who is going to inherit the blessings of Judah? How is God going to graciously accomplish his purposes through this family if no one is around to inherit it? It doesn't get better because as we see, Judah himself is not in a place spiritually to fix it. So it's going to have to take God to do something. So let's look at Judah's sin. What's going on with Judah? So after Judah's two sons died, remember that there is one more son left and his name is Shelah. But Judah's like, oh, look, I'm not, after my first two sons, I'm, I'm nervous to give my, my last born to, to, to Tamar. Because if they died being married to this woman, then it's more likely, most likely, that he's going to die being married to Tamar. We see that in the text, and this is a classic case, right, of blame the victim. He just assumes that something must be wrong with her. He's not looking at his sons or him or his family. He's looking at Tamar. So he refuses to give her into marriage, and instead he sends her back to her father's house to live and die as a grieving widow. 
And it's at this point that now Judah is again living in disobedience against God. The profile of Judah so far doesn't seem to fit the profile of one you would think would be the great, great, great grandfather of King Jesus. Genesis 37, it was Judah's idea to sell his brother Joseph for money. So we see that he is a man that's driven by greed. He's living in rebellion against God by marrying a Canaanite woman. He's a man with uncontrolled sexual passions and he's deceitful and it doesn't get any better as we read on. In verses 12 to 14, we read that Judah's wife has just passed and after getting over his grief, he decides it's time to go and sleep with the prostitute. And this wasn't just any prostitute. This was a temple prostitute. And we know this from verse 21, where he asks, where is the shrine prostitute? And the reason we are given these details in these verses about sheep and about prostitution in verses 12 to 14 is because at this time, if you really wanted lots of sheep, if you wanted your flock to grow, then the logic was you go sleep with a fertility coat, which is a shrine prostitute, shrine prostitute of the temple. Then the gods would be pleased, mind you, the Canaanite gods. This is not Yahweh. The Canaanite gods would be pleased, and the idea was that your flock would grow. So Judah is greedy. He's deceitful, he's sexually immoral, and now he's practicing Canaanite rituals. And one commentator says it like this, Judah at this point is full-blown Canaanite. He's just living that Canaanite life. He's forgotten all about the God of his fathers. So Judah goes up and he thinks that this woman he's encountered on the road is a shrine prostitute. prostitute. But this is actually Tamar, who's being shrewd here. Because she saw that Judah was holding up his end of the bargain by not giving her Sheila as her husband. And so what does she do? She takes matters into her own hands. She knows Judah is coming her way. She takes off her widow clothes and she poses as a prostitute. It's almost as if she knew how to lure Judah. She knew what his weakness was. And so we read that they meet and they talk. And Judah pays to sleep with her by giving her the most valuable things a man could have in those days, which was his signet ring and his staff. And after sleeping with her in verses 18, we read that she became pregnant. Now here's where the irony of the story really kicks in. Look at verse 24. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and she is now pregnant. And how does Judah respond? Look at verse 24. Bring her out. Let her be burned to death. Kill her. 
and you're reading this and you can't help but wonder, is Judah including himself in this? Does Judah see himself as being just as guilty and worthy of the fire as Tamar? Judah, he's lustful, he's deceitful, he's greedy, he's an idol worshiper, and he's a hypocrite. And as Paul says, such were some of you. He was sinful. He was messed up. Such were some of you. He's about to realize his own hypocrisy, verse 25. And she was being brought out. She sent a message to her father-in-law saying, I am pregnant by the man who owns these things. In other words, Judah, before you stand by your words, before you put me to death, take a close look at these things. Do they look familiar to you? Do you recognize this seal, this cord, and this staff that I have? And it's like a light switch came on for Judah. He immediately recognized his own guilt. Listen to how he responds in verse 26. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. Tamar, this woman who was abused, mistreated, sent away to her father's house and left to die as a widow. She ends up becoming the hero in this whole story. And it's not because what she did was morally right. I mean, she acted in deceit. She committed sexual immorality with her father-in-law. So why would Judah conclude that she was more righteous than him? Well, because she actually is listening to the commands of God. It was this Canaanite woman who made sure that the family line of Judah continues, whereas Judah would have been happy to watch her die as a grieving widow in her father's house. Judah had forgotten all about the purposes and plans of God. But it took this woman to remember in order to save his family. And some commentators say that this made him a new man. It was from this moment on that Judah changed. We'll see this a little bit later on because Judah goes from being this selfish sinner, Genesis chapter 38, to being one who was willing to give his life for his brother in Genesis Chapter 44. He is the one who is willing to sacrifice his life 
And in doing that, do you know who Judah is pointing to? He's pointing to someone else from his line who is going to give his life for the world. Jesus Christ. So we see Judah's sons, part one. We see Judah's sins. And now the story concludes with Judah's sons, part two. Look at verses 27. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Does it sound familiar? Sounds like Jacob and Esau. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand so that the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist, saying, this one came out first. But then he withdrew back his hand and behold, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you have broken out. And He was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zara. Surprise, surprise. The one who will carry on the name for Judah will not be Ur, will not be Onan, and will not be Shelah. And it won't be Zara. It will be Perez. The one who bursts out of the womb. You see, God had a plan, and he was working out his plan through this whole sordid ordeal. And that's what the story of Joseph is about. God is in control, and he is accomplishing his purposes, even through our sinfulness and our messiness. It would be through Perez that the line of Judah, which was the covenant line, would be preserved and continued, even in the midst of all of these sinful circumstances. And just so you have an idea as to what I'm talking about, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And it reads, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, and so on and so on until you get to verse 16 where it reads, Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, called the Messiah. And you read that and you say glory to God. In other words, what this passage is saying is that despite Judah's sinfulness and the sinfulness of his sons, despite the fact 
that Tamar was a Canaanite woman who was not supposed to be a part of God's covenant people. God was graciously working through the messiness, through this ungodly and sordid story to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose was to bring into the world through the line of Judah a savior who would rescue a sinful and messed up and broken people. Do you see what God is doing in this story? God is accomplishing his salvific plans for you and for me and for the whole world. But he did it through the mess. Life is complicated, church. People's lives are filled with all kind of bad stories and sinful and and, and painful experiences. But what this story teaches us is that God can work through it all. We're not without hope. We're not without hope. God can take our brokenness and He can take all of our sinful mistakes, all the dysfunction from our past, and He can make something beautiful out of it. He can do something so good that it points us to Jesus and to His glory and to His marvelous grace and mercy. There's also a warning for us here in this passage. You can't expect to make ungodly alliances with the world. Live according to your flesh and expect there not to be a cost to it. Sin is still costly. Judah's sins cost him dearly. The other warning we see in this text is that your sins... We'll find you out. And I remember as a young boy, game banging, walking around with a heater in my pocket. My mom and dad didn't know, but my mom had an intuition. He was like, something's not right with you, boy. Make sure your sins will find you out. Meaning whatever you're doing in the secret is going to eventually come to the light. Judah went three months thinking he got away with sleeping with this prostitute. But it all caught up to him. What you do in secret would come to the light. So we be wise to let Genesis 38 points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. To let this chapter point us to the Messiah, the one who came into the world to heal and to save those broke, to save these broken vessels. And to then give us new life by his spirit. If God could bring 
His only begotten Son into the world through such a sinner as Judah. Even though Judah did nothing to desert it, God in His grace is able to take your sins, your failures, and use them to accomplish His great purposes. God is a God of grace, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this story we see your gracious hand at work through this sinful mess. And we see how you accomplished this. It was at this point in Judah's life that you prepared him in his family to bring the Messiah, Jesus, into the world. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how glorious. Father, help us to bring all of our sins to you, to receive the grace that you offer us because of Jesus Christ, and to resolve from this day forward, Lord, to not play with sin, to not make ungodly alliances with this world, but to draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.